people who've worked inside criminal justice and public safety systems, you know, we have a saying, which is hurt people hurt people. This is something that is well understood by experts in the field, by practitioners, by community-based organizations. And what that means is when we do nothing in response to someone being hurt, if people remain unsafe and experience trauma and don't get help to heal from trauma, their life trajectories change. It should come as no surprise that potentially committing a crime in the future may be, may be an option. We can do so much to help people, however, because just as hurt people hurt people, the, the other saying that we have is healed people heal people. This week's guest is Lenore Anderson, co-founder and president of Alliance for Safety and Justice, one of the largest reform advocacy organizations in the U.S. It combines smart policy reform with, with grassroots organizing to replace a reliance on incarceration with more effective public safety solutions. With deep domain experience in law, policy and justice reform, Lenore has recently published In Their Names, a book that not only provides historical insight into an indictment of how the victims' rights movement warped the American justice system, but created a cycle of trauma. However, Lenore also provides a roadmap into breaking the cycle of trauma and a future vision for justice, healing and creating safer communities and society. Now, thanks to David Risley for the connection. And at the end of this interview, David joins the podcast as he discuss where their work intersects. Now, over to Lenore. Welcome, Lenore. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And where, where does this podcast find you? I'm in Oakland, California. Well, really want to get into what you're currently doing and the, the world-changing ideas that you're um, advocating for and the actions you're taking to implement them. But before we do, really do want to get started by understanding a bit more about Lenore the person, who you really are, and who or what made you you. Those are some deep questions to start with, Mark. appreciate you <laughs> jumping in there. I'm a mom. Uh, I'm a mom probably um, in most of my identity, and I'm a dog mom too. I love family. That's really what motivates me most of the time is is family. I'm, let's see. So, you know, I was born in uh, Waco, Texas, uh, moved around a lot oh, as a child. Not far from here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, moved around a lot as a child. My father was in the military. And so part of my identity is a military brat, like, like many, uh, people who grew up in that environment. It meant, you know, getting a, a lot of exposure to a uh, lots mm-hmm. of different parts of the country at an early age. And I think some of that exposure, you know, we lived in Air Force bases throughout the South and um, he retired uh, when I was entering high school in California. I I feel like a, a lot of uh, my worldview comes from those early years experiencing different parts of the country and, and seeing um, both similarities and differences. I really value hard work, Mark. I, I think that that's, you know, when I think about what I offer, it's not, you know, I don't conceive of myself as needing to be or even able to be the, the smartest person or uh, the person with the most amazing personal story, but I will work hard and I will work hard to achieve a goal. And, um, that's what I've been trying to do for the last couple of decades, at least. Was that, was that ethic ingrained in you because of your father's sort of military background? 
I mean, I understand, I understand. The reason I say that is my father was in the um, the Navy or what was in the UK was called the fleet air arm on the aircraft carriers. And I certainly remember being, let's say it being highly encouraged to work hard, sometimes with a, a boot and a, and a back of his hand. <laughs> Indeed. So I learned, I learned about hard work from my father. There's no question about that. I learned about compassion and generosity from my mother. And I learned about hard work and taking pride in effort from my dad. I'm deeply uh, grateful to both of them. It's a good combination. Compassion, generosity, and hard work. Yeah, my mom, I I grew up in memories of her painting. Uh, She's a a painter and um, a lover of art, a lover of music. And so, yeah, it it was a very lucky combination for me. Obviously, you, you slightly answered the, that second question as to who or what made you, you, your parents. And what about siblings, teachers, and any mentors or any defining memorable experiences in those early years? Oh, yeah. Well, so I'm the youngest of four siblings and my oldest sister, uh, her name's Michelle. Uh, she instilled a, a value of social justice in me when I was very, very young. You know, she's been a social justice activist herself. And I really looked up to her as a young child and sort of wanted to emulate uh, what she was teaching me. You know, I think the saying, you know, my family were white Americans and uh, we moved all around the United States. When we were in Nebraska, my father was getting ready to be relocated to Louisiana. And I remember my dad, you know, sitting us down and, and telling us that we uh, don't tolerate racism in our family. And my sister, Michelle, really was a, a beacon for me and sort of emulating what it looks like to to disagree when we see, you know, issues of social injustice coming up. And, uh, you know, that was sort of, you know, back in the in the 80s. And, you know, I just remember those early conversations with her about, you know, sometimes when you when you value human rights, when you value racial equality, it means that you disagree with the people around you and even your friends. And you just mm. have to do that because that's what it looks like to care about all of humanity. Wow. What led to her taking such a stance on in social justice? Oh, that'd be such a great question for her. She, she'd be a wonderful <laughs> person, uh, a wonderful person for you to, for you to talk to. It's, it's funny. I, you know, I think she uh, has always had that independent spirit, definitely learned about both hard work and compassion from our parents. And, you know, I think she just uh, had her own role models. I know she had many early teachers and, and, and feminist activists who influenced her own way of thinking. Before we're getting into the, the, what you're working to achieve, as we say, before you leave this mortal coil, a long way to go, what are your earliest memories or the realization that you did actually feel either a desire to or obliged to make a difference in the world? Uh, well, you know, Mark, I, I often tell a story about my, my high school years. So I, uh, went to high school and grew up as a teenager and young adult in California in the 1980s and 90s. And I was a troublemaker as a kid. <laughs> I, um, I had a foot tall mohawk and I oh, wow. did it indeed. <laughs> and I took great pride in rebelling and that got me in occasional trouble. Um, you know, whether it was with neighbors or teachers or occasionally police. And the response to me, Mark, was one of 
second chances. It was a, it was a response that was based in a, a presumption that I would grow out of it and mm-hmm. steering me in the right direction, helping me. You know, I had teachers who let me uh, pass classes that I, I didn't pass. Police would uh, let me go home instead of uh, taking me to juvenile hall. My parents had uh, resources to help me with uh, therapy and other finding a job and, and things like that, getting me on the right path. There was, uh, you know, like I said, a, a basic presumption that I would grow out of it. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I was older that I understood um, that that response to me as a, a troublemaker, as a teenager, uh, was not a response that's universally experienced. In fact, it's the exception to the rule, and it's really um, primarily a second chances response that's reserved for uh, middle class youth and white youth. And just what was happening contextually really matters here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 1980s and 90s in California, that was the height of the tough on crime movement in the United States. This is when politicians were, you know, kind of stepping over each other to look tougher and tougher on crime. In particular, in California at that time, there was what was referred to as a war on youth. It, right? Am I right? Am I right in saying was it Governor Jerry Brown? So there was uh, Pete Wilson, uh, uh, Governor Brown in his very first term, uh, mm-hmm. followed by a series of, of other governors, all passed laws that enacted mandatory sentencing and tough sentencing. And this really ratcheted up the power of the criminal justice system. So at the same exact time that uh, youth of color and low-income youth across the state uh, were being uh, surveilled and arrested for the minorest of infractions driven into the juvenile and criminal justice systems, here I was uh, making some of the same mistakes and getting second and third passes. Well, fast forward a decade after high school, I'm in law school, and um, I come out of law school and my first job out of law school was actually uh, representing the youth um, who were facing time behind bars. So I was working with parents of incarcerated youth to help those parents advocate for alternatives to incarceration. Um, you know, we're talking young people who are facing literally years behind bars. And one of the things that stood out to me so much in those early years, Mark, was how similar these kids were from who I was as a teenager uh, the response was the only difference, not, not the child, not the teen. And so for me, um, you know, the work that I do is a foundationally, it's a, it's a commitment to racial equality. It's, mm-hmm. you know, my commitment to do everything I can given uh, the opportunities and the privileges that I've received. It's doing everything I can to give back and to create a more fair and equitable and safer world for everyone. Wow. Can you do you ever sit back and reflect on what would have happened if you had gone down the alternative path if they if they had let's just say reacted the same way to you as they were to other kids your age that ended up in prison what a different path you would have taken Yeah I mean and we know you know we know that path we can we can look and see and I you know I've seen what has happened over and over again so many young people who are facing time behind bars uh, were hurt long before they ever acted out. And so many times uh, there was no support and no help whatsoever. And so, you know, when, when young people 
are getting in trouble, uh, we can look at it as mm-hmm. a sign that may, something may be wrong, um, that we need to jump in and help this young person. Or we can look at it as, oh, they're committing a crime. And so we're going to offer some, some level of punishment. And how we look at it changes everything. And so, you know, what I, what I know is if I had received the same, just, you know, punish her response, I would have ended up on the same, on the same path. Okay. So that's really great context. The irony is that, yeah, 10 years on, you found yourself in law representing these kids when you could have gone down such a different path. But what I'm also interested in that even with a strong sense of justice, when I know what it's like being an idealistic rebel rousing teenager wanting to sort of overturn the system, often reality bites and, and the just the real life kicks in and you've got responsibilities and you have to take, take a, a proper day job and suddenly those ideals fade. But for you, they didn't. You, you actually did go on to study ethics and political science and, and then law. So obviously there was something inside you still burning. You didn't go down the path of going, well, I'm just going to go and do an engineering degree or a master's in business. What was it that what was still burning inside you that set you on that path? Purpose. Mm-hmm. I think for me, guiding my life in service of purpose makes me get up every day. I, you know, and as I get older, this may be the kind of thing <laughs> that, that doesn't, that maybe I would wish I felt differently about, but I've, I've never been motivated by money in that way. I've not been motivated by some of the sort of things that uh, might lead towards making rational <laughs> decisions about a career. You know, even the concept career wasn't something that resonated necessarily. I, I wanted to make sure that I was in service of a larger purpose. Um, that's, that's really what's always, um, sort of kept me going. I, I feel so, uh, grateful to have learned the truth about injustice. Mm. And for me, it's the kind of thing that you can't unsee. Once I understood and understood intimately this, the scale of violence that has happened inside our justice system, um, this, the scale of disregard that communities in particular communities of color have experienced, that is not uh, something I can look away from. And my hope is that it's not something that that anyone who gets the right level of exposure could could look away from either. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are in the midst of um, probably a multi-decade journey to right the wrongs from the eighties um, and what we're about to go on and talk about. And you're confronting system level change, which is part, arguably, of the American political and cultural DNA has been sort of woven through the fabric of society since the 80s, as you say, in an unjust manner, you know, deepening probably the racial inequities and the injustice that already existed. And aside from just that daily, waking up with daily purpose, you, you must have to confront, I mean, it's natural human emotions to confront fragility and doubt. And when you face either uncertainty or resistance, as there must be a fair bit of resistance to what you are proposing and arguing for and advocating for. How do you deal with that? What keeps you going? Mm. 
you know, in, in the world of social change, we lose a lot more than we win. This is mm-hmm. not a path to, yeah. that anyone should be on if they're looking for accolades. Nope. And it's not, it, it's not, a qu- it's not a quick win business. <laughs> nope. No, you're not having, you know, celebration parties every weekend, but it's not about me. Like I, I think, I think for me, the reason I don't shy away from the risk, the defeat, the devastating losses after years of trying to get the simplest of reforms passed is because I am grounded in the truth, which is whatever I can do, I should do. And it's also not about me. I have been so inspired to meet people along the way. You know, when we're doing a campaign and we uh, came so close uh, to winning uh, one of our campaigns in one of our states and, you know, said we lost. And the next day, uh, one of our members, that campaign changed my life because now I know that my voice matters and I can go down to the state capitol and I can, you know, try again. Mm-hmm. That kind of collective power is what this is all about. And it's never going to just be me doing this work. Even when we lose, we move the ball forward for thousands by giving them a voice in our public policies. In a completely different interview area, right? trying to interview these people called the difference makers like yourself and storytellers and, and then domain experts in specific areas. And I interviewed this guy called Don Smith, who an ex, funnily enough, an ex-colleague of mine from advertising in Edinburgh back in the day. And he's now an inventor. And I was asking him sort of similar questions of how he deals with, you know, when failure, let's say, or <laughs> lack of uh, achievement of what your aims and goals are goes with being an inventor. And he, he talked about this um, uh, philosophy from a, a German philosopher called Emergence. He said, there is no success and failure. Everything is just in a state of emergence. What you were 10 years ago, what you are today, where the world is then and where the world is now is not where the world's going to be in 5, 10, 15 years' time. Everything is emerging. And you are a part of that emergence. The actions you take, the decisions you make, the, the actions you don't take, you have a, you're a part of influencing emergence. So it's interesting when you describe that. It just makes me think of this... Uh, we are in a sense of a emergence towards a more just, equitable society. Yeah, that's right. The risk of not doing anything is so much greater than the risk of doing something, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and there's so many benefits. You know, again, even if you lose the campaign, even if the policy reform doesn't become enacted, um, the lives that have been touched by taking that stand you're you're providing visibility and dignity to people who deserve it. And that alone um, is worth the price of admission. You'd mentioned, obviously, hard work, compassion, and generosity that came from your mother and father. But it sounds like there's a quite a tenacious spirit in there. What what would you describe your natural gifts or talents as? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I have been described as tenacious. That is, that's, <laughs> that is an adjective that has come it up bubbles, on occasion. It bubbles to the top. <laughs> You know, I, I do value relentlessness. Mm-hmm. 
I, that I, I, don't know, I don't know who originally said it, but that this, this concept that always resonates with me is this idea of like, we are our own worst enemies. Like we're in the way of ourselves. And so if you can get out of the way of yourself, what becomes mm-hmm. possible for you? You know, I love that way of thinking because what it means is every day that I get up, uh, I, my job is to get out of my own head and into what I can do, what I can do with my hands, what I can do with my voice, what I can do in community with other people. If I'm out of my own way, so much can become possible through, through those actions. So I, you know, I, th- I think that that's something that, that I really, that I, that I really value. I also just really value taking responsibility. The world is ours to shape. What do people compliment you for? Oh, well, let's see. What do I get complimented for? Good listener. I hear that one. Nice wardrobe, which I love. <laughs> you gotta have, you gotta have a hobby. Do that, yeah. You gotta have a hobby. <laughs> Mine is clothes. No, in seriousness. Um, yeah. So, you know, good listener, hard worker. And, uh, you know, the, this idea of like getting things done and just sort of showing what it looks like to get things done. I, I think I've been uh, complimented a lot for my ability to move balls forward. Cool. Well. Let's talk about moving the balls forward with the Alliance of Safe, uh, for Safety and Justice. You're the president of it. And yes. I've said at the beginning, it supports survivors and establishes a vision for victims' rights. And it's based on providing trauma recovery. And we'll come and talk a bit about more about trauma, something that's come up in recent conversations, societal-level trauma. But in doing this, you're, you are breaking the cycle of violence and shifting the narrative towards services and prevention instead of vengeance and incarceration. First of all, can you explain how your organization operates? Um, as you mentioned, you're not only just trying to change policy, but you are actually confronting these deep-seated beliefs and trying to change opinions about justice, which is no small order. The um, Alliance for Safety and Justice is an organization that is focused on state-level policy change. We uh, Any state? Multi-state? We operate in eight states currently. Okay. You know, we'd be delighted to work in more as we grow. Uh, we're a decade old, and so we've made it into eight states in the in 10 years. Um, and, and our model is pretty straightforward. We focus on organizing people and changing laws. We focus on building constituencies of people who are uh, affected by both violence and incarceration. We have two constituency groups. Uh, one is called Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, about 200,000 members strong. Uh, these are all people who've been directly impacted by violence who are advocating for uh, support services and also advocating for a new approach to public safety. We have another constituency group called Time Done, and Time Done is focused on its people with old records who are uh, focused on reducing the barriers to economic mobility uh, that people with um, old convictions face. And uh, so we organize those two constituency groups and we combine that with uh, policy proposals. So we go into state houses across our states and we meet with elected officials and legislators and we make policy proposals and then we uh, lobby those proposals and advocate to get those enacted into law. In the decade since we began, we uh, succeeded in advancing more than 90 different policy and budget reforms in the eight wow. states that we work in. And those um, 90 different laws that we've enacted have 
um, had a, a good impact. Um, we've been able to reduce incarceration and community supervision by more than uh, 300,000 people across the country. And we've been able to reallocate, you know, uh, upwards of a billion dollars towards community-based victim services, uh, crime prevention, re-entry, things like that. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that must provide wonderful case studies for you to then, even when you do encounter uh, resistance or failure to affect the changes you want. Presumably, these are great case studies to then argue and advocate for further change. Yeah, you know, we have learned a lot. (laughs) And um, there's a lot of uh, lessons that can be pointed to about what it looks like to advance uh, public safety from a new from a new framework. And this is it's so critical right now to look with eyes wide open at what actually happened um, the first time around when crime was a crisis and what the response should be now. We're in a political moment where uh, concern for crime is, uh, again, very high. Mm-hmm. Um, many communities have suffered uh, tremendous, uh, significant increases in, in violence in the last few years. And so it's really critical that we do take a look at the case studies and we really do look at what happened, whether or not tough on crime worked the first time around and, and what would work better this time. I mean, when I first of all encountered the article in The Guardian and that described was uh, an interview you did, the launch of your book, I had no real context around the, the historical context around the factors that led to the tough laws back in the 80s. Perhaps you can give some sort of background to those that led to those tough laws, the unforgiving sentences, the brutal penal system that exists here, and, and why you think those policies failed and the evidence that they so clearly failed. And, and why it didn't actually result in what was intended to do, which was actually to create safer communities and cities and satisfy the needs of victims when it clearly it didn't. 1980s, uh, there was a tremendous amount of political attention to the issue of crime and, and rightfully so. It was, it was a big, it was a big problem back then, just as it is today. There were divergent political movements um, that ended up kind of becoming braided together. And, uh, you know, a, as a Californian, a lot of this actually started in in my home state. So uh, the tough on crime movement uh, began actually in the 70s and 80s um, and into and into the 90s. Um, strongest in California kind of spread across the country. The victims rights movement also began in California and kind of spread across the country. Um, so, you know, the what was happening uh, was there was it, for victims rights advocates, they were lifting up a truth which is mm-hmm. that victims are disregarded by the criminal justice system. You know, when it comes to the world of criminal court, uh, victims are uh, oftentimes a uh, little else than a witness that can help uh, a prosecutor secure a, vict- uh, a, a victory or a conviction. And so that dynamic meant that for, for, for far too many victims, uh, the justice system was a, a traumatizing experience. Um, it wasn't one where they received help and support. And so lifting up that truth of like, you know, victims are disregarded or treated poorly by the justice system was accurate. But there was a law and order sort of political strategy happening that kind of captured those same messages and put the solution to victim disregard on the side of toughening up the justice system. Um, so, you know, some very wise, you know, sort of po- political uh, strategists um, you know, kind of took this mantle of victims' rights and usurped it for the purposes of advocating for the toughest possible 
laws. And the idea was, okay, if victims aren't being treated properly, then the, the response should be to give a bunch of money and power to criminal justice bureaucracies. That resulted in, you know, sort of this era that we now refer to as the tough on crime era, where uh, politicians of all stripes, whether they were Democrat, Republican, it didn't matter, um, were calling for, we want to stand on the side of victims. And so we want tough anti-gang laws. We want tough drug laws. We want tough conditions inside prisons. We want to strip rehabilitation from the prisons. We want to diminish the rights of people in the justice system in order to strengthen, uh, allegedly, um, mm-hmm. you know, the rights of, of victims. Well, that, you know, resulted in a massive transfer of power and cash, right? Uh, you know, we're talking about criminal justice agencies, you know, turning into a political powerhouse, really. I mean, you know, the, you know, before, before this era, it wasn't as if criminal justice agencies or their associations wielded a tremendous amount of political power. But over this time period, they then became kind of a behemoth and a, and a bit of a, a, a political machine. Um, so we saw, you know, incarceration increase dramatically. Um, we saw opportunities for release, uh, go down for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw rehabilitation stripped from the justice system. And this all happened, obviously, along severely biased, um, race and socioeconomic lines. And, and so that was sort of, what happened and and the problems right you know we are lucky to live today in a time where uh, many people have offered a, a thorough assessment of all the ways in which mass incarceration um, has been harmful you know there's the impact of mass incarceration in terms of discrimination and racial disparities in terms of who's incarcerated there's the financial impact of all that tough justice in terms of just extreme waste of money on these bloated prisons that are, you know, ineffective and violent. But there's and a recidiv- recidivism and, as well. And recidivism as well. Yeah, that's right. And, but then there's this other impact that has been less talked about, which is a part of the inspiration behind why I wrote the book, which is, well, what was all the impact of that on victims, right? If we look politically at this idea that, uh, you know, we were allegedly in the eighties and nineties trying to protect victims. If you, if you take, if you take at face value, what was said mm-hmm. politically. And, you know, then I, I wanted to explore, you know, this question of, of what the impact on victims is. What we know to be true uh, from our, our work on the ground in communities and in, in state houses across the country is that this myth that tough justice is good for victims is false. Right. Mm -hmm. That in fact, we have hurt more victims of crime through building up the mass incarceration system than we have ever helped. And, um, that's really sort of how there's this, you know, how this chasm between people who've survived violence and the justice system, that chasm is what I was looking to explore. Mm -hmm. Something else that you talk about, um, in your book is the simplistic issue or simplistic approach of bucketing victims of crime bucketing either victims of crime or as a perpetrator of crime and it overlooks the the complexity of the victimized it's something you mentioned when we started the conversation about often a perpetrator is a victim of some sort of crime or injustice or suffering some sort of trauma you've said that people who are 
frequently vulnerable to everyday violence, low-income folks, people of color, immigrants, individuals with disabilities, you know, those who are unhoused. Um, now these, these are ongoing societal barriers to being protected from harm. And it leads to the likelihood that they may later commit a crime. You've, you've got this amazing stat is roughly 90 to 95% of people who get arrested and convicted of crime were a victim before. When these, these uh, laws were enacted back in the eighties, was there no evidence back then that people that commit crime, even back in the eighties, that was still a recurring issue? And given that is the case now, what is being done today? To, to try and address this now that we know the reality. Yeah, and I think that the world of politics is not always informed by the, the world of science, right? Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so, I, you know, I think when we look at what was happening pol- politically in that era, there was the myth that tough justice was good for victims, and there was the, also the myth that there's, you know, sort of innocent victims on one uh, side of a map and then, you know, people who are bad who commit crimes on another and, and never the twain shall meet. Mm-hmm. And that's a political myth that's been convenient for many people's reelection campaigns. Um, but it, but it actually is, it couldn't be further from the truth when in, in terms of looking at the complexity of, of victimization and, and cycles of violence. You know, I, I want to take a step back and just, you know, sort of say a couple big picture comments and and then get into this relationship between people who are hurt and people who hurt hurt others. So there's three reasons why sort of the tough justice era that led to mass incarceration has hurt victims. The first is because there is no evidence that the tougher the sentence, um, the less crime you have, right? In fact, the National Academy of Sciences said you know, in the most comprehensive report written to date in 2014, that uh, lengthy sentences are ineffective as a crime control measure. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence no that, the, you know, the, no deterrence. Um, this isn't going to actually turn people's lives around to give them 25 years as opposed to 15, as opposed to 10. Mm-hmm. So that sort of is one reason why um, victims were hurt. The second is because in doing all of that mass incarceration under the mythology that longer sentences worked, you depleted an immense amount of resources that could have been available at the community level for investment in community-based public safety and community-based crime prevention. But then the third reason that uh, mass incarceration has been so harmful uh, for victims of crime is because it's literally blinded the public, right? It has blinded the public to the complexities and the nuances um, about how crime and victimization happens and to the true needs of most people who are survivors. And so, you know, if we, if we are able to get rid of the mask, to take away the mythology, to let go of, you know, the stories about, you know, crime and violence and actually look at the facts, that's when you can start to see what we talk about, you know, people who've worked inside criminal justice and public safety systems, you know, we have a saying, which is hurt people, hurt people. You know, this is something that is well understood by experts in the field, by practitioners, by community-based organizations. And what that means is when we do nothing in response to someone being hurt, if people remain unsafe and experience trauma and don't get help to heal from trauma, 
their life trajectories change. It should come as no surprise that potentially committing a crime in the future may be, may be an option. We can do so much to help people, however, because just as hurt people hurt people, the, the other saying that we have is healed people heal people, right? And so if we could actually build an approach to public safety that was grounded in healing trauma, we would go so much further to stop the cycle of crime and violence than what our tough justice system has built. Um, so, you know, and just, just to then get into a little bit more about, you know, kind of what you were describing. So, yeah, so, you know, 90% of the people going into our criminal justice system have prior histories of trauma, you know, had, have been experienced victimization. It's really critical to understand that oftentimes this has been repeated trauma, right? Repeated experiences of victimization and little access to you know, the kinds of supports that we all need, that ev- everyone who has experienced trauma need to recover from that. And one of the most sinister aspects of, of American criminal justice is people who have experienced trauma who then later commit a crime are placed inside facilities that are literally designed to cut people off from humanity. Like these are places that are designed to, you know, exacerbate trauma. That's our current, you know, sort of response, whether it's, you know, the solitary confinement or the, the crowded prisons with daily fighting and suppression from guards. I mean, these are not environments that are in any way conducive to what we would need to do to improve public safety, which is heal trauma, address underlying drivers, provide people pathways to, to engage in behavior change. And that's not going to come from the kind of toxic culture um, that is built up in too many American prisons. What you just described about hurt people hurt people, is that also tie into what you described as a hierarchy of harm? So in the book, what I'm talking about and describing what I refer to as a hierarchy of harm, what I'm talking about there is the fact that we have a criminal justice system that has never been very good at seeing most victims, mm-hmm. right? So we have something that isn't talked about all that much, uh, but is profoundly true is that we have a criminal justice system that discriminates against victims frequently. And this discrimination can take the form of which victims get access to victim compensation or victim assistance in the aftermath of being hurt, to which uh, cases are investigated most thoroughly, to which victim experiences make the nightly news and drive politicians to introduce laws and, and try and reallocate money towards something. When it comes to being a victim in the United States, there is a hierarchy of whose harm matters to our criminal justice system and whose harm has not mattered all that much. Which I'm assuming is racial biased. It's along race and socioeconomic lines. And we have seen this. And I, you know, I just want to, let me just give you some examples, Mark, because these are some devastating truths that are not elevated in the public discourse on crime all that much. In, in the city of New Orleans in 2017, a report came out, uh, that the, uh, New Orleans prosecutor's office had arrested 150 victims of crime over a five-year period, arrested 
to compel their testimony in court. Okay. Uh, we're talking wow. victims of, we're talking victims of domestic violence, victims of human trafficking, victims, um, who witnessed or had been victims of shootings in the neighborhood. Why? Why would they, why would they not want to testify? Well, so let's, let's, let's answer that in, in two parts. First, just to give you a flavor for what I mean by, um, the hierarchy of harm, the experiences of victimization that the victims who were arrested by the prosecutor's office had were diverse. The unifying feature of which victims were arrested and which were not was almost all of the victims who were arrested by the prosecutor's office were low income victims of color, almost all of whom were women. Okay. Um, so that's who is being arrested. All right. And then to your second question, which is why would they not want to testify when, when we have a justice system that has been as racially biased as ours has, we have to confront the truth that there is a massive trust gap. Okay. Many communities, particularly communities of color, have not been able to rely on the justice system to deliver protection or to deliver safety. It is for many people, it is actually more dangerous to interact with the justice system than it is to stay away from it. You know, we have not had a justice system that has been very good at protecting people and allowing people to be assured that there won't be any retaliation. Uh, we have not had a justice system that has been very good at protecting survivors of things like domestic violence and human trafficking. You know, this is not a place where uh, people can rely on, hey, if I engage, I'm going to be okay on the other side. For, mm-hmm. for many, that it's, it's actually more dangerous. So again, so when you look at what the prosecutor's office in New Orleans did, the reason I think this is so illustrative of this dynamic of a hierarchy of harm is that the prosecutor's office was arresting primarily low-income victims and victims of color for the purposes of compelling their testimony with no regard for the impact on the lives uh, of the, of the victims who were um, experiencing this. It was so shocking, you know, that, that, you know, remarkable lawyers at organizations like the ACLU and Civil Rights Corps uh, came together, filed lawsuits, you know, tremendously courageous uh, survivors uh, like Renata Singleton came forward and told their story about being incarcerated. You know, she was someone who, um, it was a misdemeanor uh, case. The perpetrator uh, was actually, didn't spend a single day in jail, the victim of crime. Renata, she was in jail for five days. You know, the, the impact, that collateral yeah. impact on families. It's astounding. It's it astounding. You, you just can't, can't so, believe that. So they cut, so, you know, so these champions for, for justice come forward and, um, you know, survivors leading the way tell their stories, lawyers file a lawsuit. The, it made national news, right? So this was, you know, something that drove headlines. You know, there was shock that we would be arresting victims. When there's so many other ways, by the way, to compel testimony, if that's really your goal. And so much so that the laws changed. So now there is uh, a court order and New Orleans can no longer engage in this um, arresting of victims. But it's just one example of what happens chronically. I mean, you know, my organization, um, you know, we work with survivors of um, crime across the country. That's who our membership is. And, you know, Mark, it's regular for us to, um, hear from our membership. Oh, you know, the police officers, um, you know, never called me back. The investigator won't tell me what happened in the case. 
um, the, you know, I applied for victim compensation, but they said uh, my application was denied because I didn't have a permanent home address. You know, I mean, this is, this is what is happening with alarming frequency. And this matters a lot. When people have been hurt by violence and we do not provide them with help, we are setting them up to be even more vulnerable than they were before they were hurt. The long-term impacts of violence are substantial. You go into debt, right? Victimization debt. You know, we have so many wonderful people in our organization whose loved ones have been killed by violence. They took on enormous financial burdens when that person died. If you can't get help recovering from that debt, you know, that has lifelong impacts. You know, people who've been injured by gun violence or domestic violence who can no longer work in their job because of physical injury, not getting a pathway to a new approach to, to earn, earn income, not to mention the impacts of trauma, um, which are well known in terms of PTSD, sleeplessness, depression. These are all resolvable issues. And if we cared about public safety, you'd think it'd be the top thing we'd be doing. Yeah, it, it, it's t- totally shocking. Um, I mean, I can't just get over that, that stat. That was, wait a minute, that was 2017 in New Orleans. That's right. Is, is it being addressed or is it continuing? I mean, you know, luckily, and, and this is what we find and kind of what I try and chronicle a little bit in the, in the book is at every turn, you see survivor leaders standing up and fighting for change and winning. You know, there's that, you know, my organization has been able to advocate for and, and win the establishment of 41 trauma recovery centers across the country. We've changed victim compensation laws to allow for more people to be eligible. And in, and in New Orleans, yeah, it was, um, you know, courageous survivor leaders who came forward, lawsuits and grassroots organizers who changed the laws. And, you know, this was all just very recently, right? The, the, the case um, settled within just a couple of years. So, so this is, this is present day. These are present day struggles for fairness and visibility for all victims. Another um, thing that you touch on in the book that um, it's, is an issue in its own right that's been going on for decades, which is the war on drugs. Um, and without getting into the ineffectiveness, arguable ineffectiveness, or the blunt ineffectiveness of the war on drugs, you stated that it, along with the push to increase victim rights, it's led to an increase in surveillance in predominantly low-income uh, neighborhoods and neighborhoods often of color as well, which just is another factor in reinforcing racial disparities. Aside from all the work you're doing, I mean, what could be done about that? You know, one of the stories I tell I tell in the book is is about the city of Cleveland, and um, this is a city that, frankly, wasn't doing anything all that much different than than any other city at the time. But when the call was when the political call to action was tough on crime. What that resulted in was a transfer of cash from the federal government to the cities, um, mostly for police departments, mostly to militarize those police departments. Mm-hmm. And that meant that uh, surveillance, particularly in com- communities of color and urban communities, um, skyrocketed. And what, what you give money to is what the justice system will be good at doing, right? So, you know, uh, there was a drastic increase in the city of Cleveland in the number of Clevelanders of color who were being arrested for um, simple crack pipe possession um, and driven into state prison 
and and what's important to know, and that's because that's what Cleveland got money to do mm. was to prosecute as tough as possible um you know these uh these these low level um drug related offenses so at the same time that Cleveland police were arresting uh, Clevelanders of color in droves for things like simple drug possession and crack pipes the same time that that was happening in a back office in the same police department rape kit rape uh testing kits were piling up and getting dust right no one was paying attention to what was truly a crisis of safety happening. Um, so this, this imbalance between a justice system that gets really good at pursuing low level related offenses, drug related offenses, really good at surveilling and all of that, by the way, particularly in communities of color, that's where, you know, a bunch of incarceration skyrocketed off of that kind of activity. At the same time that many cities were experiencing a backlog in testing rape kits, were experiencing very low homicide closure rates. I mean, you know, there are some cities where uh, the rate of closure of homicide cases, which which means was the case solved, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, hovers around 25%. You know, 25, 15, 25% of sexual assault cases, homicide cases are being effectively investigated and prosecuted or or closed at the same time that you know we're seeing incarceration skyrocket over these uh these other types of crimes and so that's you know so that's that's sort of another expression of this hierarchy of harm of, of what do we really care about and what are these resources going to you know, part of your question was, what, what do we do different, right? What, what does it yeah. look like to re-imagine um, this whole yes. system? There's so many remarkable opportunities and, and we're in an exciting time. I, you know, I have to say, I've just been so inspired by just even the last few years of, of what's happened across the country. Um, we've seen a, a movement for com- what, what, what my colleague Akila uh, Shareels calls co- community-based public safety. And what does this mean? Well, this means rather than building up the justice system, which has been ineffective for far too long, let's equip communities with the capacity to prevent cycles of violence. And this is what you can invest in to equip communities to to thrive. Um, violence intervention programs. These are community-based conflict mediation um, youth mentorship type of programs where residents uh, support young people who may be getting in trouble to to turn their lives around and and get to safety another example trauma recovery centers community-based programs that can provide victims who uh, have been overlooked by the traditional justice system with not just therapeutic support but also emergency crisis response there's mental health crisis assistance. Um, you know, we've seen a lot more attention to that in the news, you know, the, as opposed to relying on the justice system to respond to people in psychiatric crisis. Let's, uh, instead, uh, provide mental health crisis responders who can support people experiencing mental illness. And then, you know, you have reentry. I mean, you know, the programs, uh, for reentry, uh, that are building up across the country are just remarkable, um, doing uh, work helping people find jobs and housing after incarceration or after time in the justice system. Mark, that's 
the new safety movement that I just described, right? That's where we're seeing so much more energy and um, so much more growth. And it's just really exciting to see it. Obviously, cities in the US are much bigger than cities in the UK. But if I think about close-knit communities before, there was lots of, let's say, migration between countries, uh, cities, you know, back in the probably the 60s and 70s, certainly in the UK, the local community would look, know who was the person to look out for. They need a wee bit of help. They, they've got a problem. We need to nip this one in the bud and stop them from escalating. People knew that you look, the community looks after itself. Well, I suppose it's just natural the way the world has gone that, you know, with the, the, the aside from the changes that you were, you've described, the communities became less, uh, driven by centers of community, let's say churches or community centers and families. Probably there wasn't such a great, uh, sort of connectivity between certain communities. So it's, it's, in a way, it's probably natural that those, those safeguards disappeared. So what you're describing just sounds like the common sense way that any community can look after itself and pr- be preventative. Yeah. And it's critical, and it's critical to understand there were policy decisions that drove. Mm-hmm these these realities right you know when uh when there was a a crisis of you know drugs in the 80s and 90s uh the response was militarization of police and and mass surveillance that has a direct impact on on communities who are being surveilled you know many observers of that of that era in in u.s history accurately argue that uh, it contributed to violence more, more than it ever uh, empowered you know, communities to uh, overcome, you know, challenges as it relates to um, substance use disorder. So, you know, I think that it matters a lot at the level of policy. Do we see communities affected by violence as partners in resolving it or as problems to be surveilled? And we either, we either give communities dignity and support natural leadership and empower people who can solve these problems, or we end up building up a massive justice system that's better at surveilling than it is stopping cycles. There's another thing you talk about in your book that I was sort of slightly aware of, but didn't realize it was that it, it was such a groundswell of opinion that what led to this, these policy changes in the 80s to support victims' rights haven't actually supported victims' rights. And when you actually ask victims what their opinions are, what they seek in terms of justice, it's less about punitive penalties and it's increasingly more about the desire for rehabilitation. And it's something that previous guest David Risley talked about in restorative justice systems. So c- can you just, just expand upon that and what you're seeing in terms of what victims really seek? So my organization, we have c- conducted surveys and interviews uh, with uh, diverse victims of crime. We uh, surveyed more than 10,000 survivors of a crime and violence in the last uh, decade. And we have done these surveys to be able to elevate representative opinions. Much of the time, uh, when it comes to what the public thinks victims want, it's driven by anecdote. It's driven by one story that made the media that drove news coverage for, you know, several cycles. So we wanted to counter that with representative information, which is why we engaged in um, research and surveying. And 
what we found is, you know, first of all, there is no monolith. You know, the victims um, have a wide range of opinions and a wide range of uh, desires from uh, cr- the criminal justice system. But one of the most common things that we have found um, a- a- across demographic groups is that what victims want is for what happened to them to not happen again. And the resulting policy preference is for rehabilitation and uh, more investments into things like mental health, crisis assistance and violence prevention over and above extreme sentencing because it would be more effective at stopping the cycle of crime. You know, when you look at, you know, what victims are saying uh, through our surveys and research, uh, there's a two to one preference for rehabilitation over punishment, you know, a five to one preference uh, for shorter sentences if it means we can put more money into crime prevention and violence prevention. Um, you know, those are the kinds of trade-offs that matter a lot for our pu- pu- public policy officials to to understand because it it kind of flies in the face of what that mythological mythological you know story is that's out there about about who victims are and what they want. Just as an aside, do you ever get into conversations with policymakers just using international examples of different models of like the Scandinavian models and what they do in Norway? in terms of their justice systems, which are radically different. Yeah, you know, um, there was uh, a tour of, 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 you know, probably about eight or nine years ago, there was a group of uh, public officials, mostly from California, but I, I don't know that it was exclusive, who actually went and visited the uh, German uh, correction system uh, for the purposes of understanding some of the key differences between that system and our, and our system in the, in the United States. And you know, there's a there's a few key features that uh, matter a lot um, when it comes to public safety. One is that there's that you know in 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 some of those other systems, what we see is a goal of rehabilitation. The goal is not maximum punishment. The goal is rehabilitation, and built into the correction system is an anticipation that the person is going to be returning, um, and so we want the person to be returning as capably as possible, you know, so that they can not just be law abiding, but be active contributor, contributing members of our families and communities. So it's just a completely different orientation. And I think when, when public officials have an opportunity to experience that firsthand, it does have a a kind of a breakthrough impact in terms of, of their understanding. You know, and I would say the same about looking at restorative justice models, whether that's international or or domestic, when people who are, you know, not familiar with an alternative uh, way of repairing harm, when they, when they see what happens in restorative justice programs, it's life changing for them. The great thing with your book, because you, it provides us, say, historical context and tells some great stories of, to rather than just using data to bring to life the the injustices and the experiences of of victims. And this examples of this hurt people, hurting people. Now, healing people can heal people. But what's great in the latter part of your book, I think in the sort of last from chapter 10 to 14, I think it was, you set out a roadmap and a vision of a more just system. Can you provide an overview and some examples? I mean, you, I know you've touched on it already in terms of this community, community based solutions, but it, you have clearly thought about and looked at what can be effective and why it is a viable alternative 
to what exists now if embraced at scale. And also the fact I think it's interesting as well. So you, you've done, you've, you've, you've done the math. You've, you've broken down the cost and the show of the sort of the level one, level two, level three and the impact that, that it can actually have. And so the first thing that um, I describe as needed in my book for a new approach to public safety is uh, transforming what we conceive of when we talk about victims' rights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a long time, the traditional way of looking at victims' rights is a right to speak in court proceedings and, and things that are are valuable but are woefully inadequate. You know, one of the things I lift up is this idea of a right to trauma recovery, um, that we should prioritize ensuring that when people are hurt by violence, that they get access to real support to recover from that trauma. Um, that looks like trauma recovery centers. That looks like school and housing and, and employment accommodations. And that is possible if we prioritize recovering from trauma. The second proposal that I make is uh, really related to recognizing um, that we don't know very much about who victims are and what victims want. You know, most of the time, conversations around criminal justice and crime uh, revolve around crime statistics. Mm. And that's a just a, it, it's so limited in its viewpoint. Crime statistics are a very limited snapshot of only what is reported to police. Most crime and violence is not reported to police. And, and so looking just at what comes into law enforcement, you know, on a, on a day or a year isn't going to tell you very much. So, you know, there's a need to take seriously this idea of human centered information, information related to victimization and information related to what people who aren't experiencing safety in their homes or communities are going through and what their needs are. So, so we need, you know, we need a new right for victims and we need new data. And then the third thing I talk about is, is, is sort of what you, you were referencing there in terms of the cost. Um, you know, this concept of scaling up a new approach to safety. It is so much more cost effective to invest in community based, um, violence intervention workers, community based trauma recovery center workers, mental health crisis assistance responders and reentry case managers. That's the forefront of the new mm. uh, safety leadership. That's who we should be investing in at the community level. And I offer some estimates of, of what all that would look like financially. But the headline is it'd be much cheaper than the 300 billion we spend uh, per year on our current cr- criminal justice system. You'd think the wily politician, whatever side of the party lines they sit, would see an opportunity in this. That something going, well, I'm going to save you taxpayers a shit ton of money. And this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to make you safer at the same time. And it doesn't use the words tough on crime. It's tough on crime. It's tough on taxpayers. Let's change the narrative. I mean, that, that just seems like it's a, a, it's a policy decision and a, a winning policy decision waiting to be snapped up by some smart politician. Well, why, why aren't they, why aren't they getting it? Well, you know, they're growing in numbers. I got to say, we, um, you know, they're, they're politicians on both sides of the aisle have in fact talked about the budget busting nature of our approach to um, criminal justice and how we just literally simply can't afford um, to do this sort of dysfunctional, um, you know, incarcerate our way to safety approach. You know, I, I, I've been so excited and inspired to see politicians who are forward thinking in that way, make, make some real honest proposals. You know, there's, there's entrenched interests here, Mark, you know, there's the narrative, there's talking to voters about the trade-offs. Those things really matter. 
but you know, we have to be honest that, you know, there's um, associations, you know, mm. others who hire lobbyists and, you know, yeah. go work the capital and opposing you know, lobby groups. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the challenges with building up these big bureaucracies is some of these criminal justice bureaucracies, the thing that they're best at is protecting their own financial interests, really. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to be honest about that. And, and, and again, there's so many good people who work inside, uh, you know, all la- layers of, of criminal justice systems who want a different way. But th- those interests are not always represented um, by these by these associations that walk the capitals, and you know, so so we have to we have to engage with the forward thinking leaders inside the justice system, the forward thinking politicians who are willing to uh, stand up for what's rational and build the movement that way. Right, I'm, I'm learning about the the system and criminal justice and reform, but there's lots of organisations. Uh, NGOs, charities working in this area, you know, from the Innocence Project, which obviously has deals with the diff- has a different side of the mm-hmm. um, of the system, to other projects that really focus on getting reducing recidivism and creating economic opportunity for ex inmates. As this is is a system wide problem, how are you working with other organisations in collectively to let's say to create a, a unified narrative? So there isn't just individual organizations chipping away at this massive system that is essentially the industrialized criminal justice system. Is there, is there more that can be done? Yeah, there, there, we, we have some wonderful partners, um, that we work with, um, to advance, you know, our, our efforts, um, you know, at the federal level, we have something called the National Coalition for Shared Safety. And, um, that's a coalition that involves Leaders, you know, from violence prevention, leaders from reentry, mental health and victim services, all sort of working together on unified messages and unified strategies to get more federal dollars to go to these kinds of solutions at the community level. You know, and in each of our states, we work with a really wide range of, you know, collaborators and coalition partners. You know, our organization is nonpartisan. Um, we uh, take great pride in our capacity to partner ac- across the political spectrum. Um, to advance change, you know, so we, uh, we have all kinds of uh, partners, whether it's grassroots or political organizations or, um, you know, labor associations, business associations, faith associations. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, a lot of the time, um, you know, what's possible in terms of coalition is really, um, driven by if resources are available to allow for organizations to collaborate. Um, so we've been really grateful for, you know, philanthropy's interest in seeing more and more organizations come together. And, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of possibility out there for even more collaboration moving forward. But, you know, just to give you an example, you know, faith-based organizations have played a huge role in mm-hmm. um, advocating for criminal justice reform. And so's the business sector, you know, in Michigan, um, you know, Michigan passed a series of what are called clean slate laws. And these are laws that allow people with old records to clear their records so they can become eligible for jobs and housing. And um, the clean slate package in Michigan was passed not just with, you know, public safety and criminal justice reform organizations like mine, but also business leaders. They were a huge ally in that campaign. And they really, um, because of that partnership with business leaders and also faith leaders, that was sort of the three-part coalition that was able to get clean slate passed in Michigan. That's really interesting. What, um, just as a matter of interest, what states do you operate? You said seven or eight states. Yeah, the, the big ones. So we're in Texas, 
Um, we're in Florida, California, Illinois, um, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. So what I'm doing with the podcast, and I think I explained to you before, is when David will join us shortly, hopefully, although that's not a serendipitous connection, I want to look at creating or facilitating what I'm calling random collisions to look at where there might not be an obvious connection between someone working in an area to affect to make a difference in the world, but where you look, when you look at it at a system wide level, it's all connected. So whether that be criminal justice reform, what's happened, what you're doing, whether it be related to changes in the ed- education system. Hi, David. Hello. Hi, David. Hi. Lenore, just, it's been so long. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just finish off my, my question uh, and to look at where there's an intersection between maybe needs for changes and reform and education with the criminal justice system, with mental health, with the attitudes and use of and uh, of social media, all of them in some way, when you're looking at the negative externalities or the issues that need change are leading to a societal level trauma. And it's interesting, I was reading about Esther Perel's husband, who I didn't know about, um, Jack Saul, who runs the trauma program at Columbia University, and I'm going to try and get him on. But what I'd like to do at some point uh, is once I get a few more interviews under my belt with the, these difference makers like yourself, is to do a random collision event and bring everyone together to talk about trauma at, at, from their different perspectives and see where there's intersections and where there can be collaboration when, and benefit of connecting these people together. So as long as you're open to that, I put you on the list. Love it. Cool. Okay. Counts for you as well, David, by the way, you know that. <laughs> um, and also, yeah, I did what I need to do as well. And my final question is, you know, who do I interview next? Because I want to tap into your network, into your wisdom, your experiences to help me connect these people that are all action takers, that are all creating progress, albeit in small steps in some cases and not as fast as you want, but mm-hmm. collectively, yeah. I think people need to know that there's a lot of people out there taking action, driving change, and, it, and it, I've got a massive train line right next to me. You know one of these long Texas trains? Drives totally. me nuts, yeah. So as long as you're open to that, that, that would be great. Absolutely. Um, and it's all based on reciprocity. So you don't have to answer it now, but the question will be, who do I interview next? So Well, I can send you a long list. Excellent. Well, we'll do that afterwards. But and Lenore, anyway. you can guess who was on my list. <laughs> that was you. Oh, oh. Yeah, you. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> anyway, now that I've got you both here and you're working in parallel, let's say parallel tracks in with the, the same intent, which is to confront the injustice in the system and I, i'd just love to get your both your perspectives on what both where you where your work intersects so i understand that and also in terms of where there might be an opportunity to get you together in some sort of design thinking workshop and who else would have to be in that to make it beneficial whether it be a whether it be a someone working within state government or be an elected official of some description, you know, just it's really just to get you to bounce off each other for a minute or two. What are your thoughts on that, David? 
Well, first of all, the intersection, as we talked about in our conversation yesterday, episode 17 of Justice Voices, <laughs> the intersection, I think, is twofold. One, the commonality of the of trauma as a as a common denominator in both the the victim side and the perpetrator of harm side of the crime equation and the need to address it if we're going to achieve either justice on the one hand or public safety on the other it's a win-win if trauma is addressed it's a lose-lose if trauma is not by not i mean neither for the victim or for the perpetrator of the harm that caused the trauma to the victim. The second thing, though, is this connection that you so powerfully describe between the victim rights, which rather than just rights, let's call it victim healing and public safety which by my definition of justice, justice as healing, is again, I mean, I, I suppose it's just another way of saying much the same thing, but when you make that connection between healing for the victim and public safety, that includes necessarily healing for the community and for everyone impacted by that, I, I just did a conversation, recorded a conversation yesterday with uh, Jeff Ford, which will be in the episode of Justice Voices to follow you. Jeff Ford is just recently retired as a uh, state court judge in a, a problem-solving drug court. And we talked about problem-solving in the justice system. It can be done, even without dramatic changes in the system. So that, I think, is the commonality. And I, I think the angle you take, Lenore, is so powerful, which is if we solve the victim side of the equation, we at the same time are solving a great deal of the perpetrator side of the equation and reducing crime. You've, you've written quite very eloquently, David, about your justice visions strategy, which is about reform and redirection of funds and the redesign of the system wholeheartedly. Which part of that, I can't really recall whether there was elements within that that did talk about when Lenore covers around this trauma, this victim healing and, and trauma support within the community. Is there is there something in your document that touches on that? Yes, it's the part that I call victim voices. Uh -huh. The voices yeah. of the victims those are stories that need to be told, and those are voices that need to be heard. And strategically, it's not just because that's just fair. I mean, why would you give voice to the perpetrators of harm and not the victims of harm? So it's just part of the justice equation that I'm trying to flesh out because it is complex. I mean, there's a lot of elements to it. There are a lot of voices, and but the victim voices part of that is strategically part of reimagining our approach to criminal justice as a problem-solving approach rather than a punishment approach yep. or paradigm. And this is exactly what Lenore zeroes in on. 
So when we talk about the size, I mean, the, the scale of the change, even in eight states, is massive. But when you boil it down to neighborhood level or city level, then you're talking about sort of a manageable, and it's obviously, I mentioned, Lenore, the, the examples you've given in, in the book. Where does it, where is there a role for public private partnerships? I mean, I've got an interview coming up with a guy called Bracken Darrell, who is the CEO of Logitech. And his, his focus for the next 10 years is to address diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice within his organization's orbit to address the stigma of mental health and to become carbon positive. Now, within that, I know full well that they're, for them, one of their challenges as an organization, being operating in California, is, is talent. Mm. And, the, and I talked about David before about the underutilized talent and creative talent that exists in a lot of these communities. So as you make the economic argument for savings in taxpayers' money, there's also the benefit to society as people avoid going down one route start to utilize their talents and become a, a resource for local businesses, not just a resource, a market. So there is a, there's, a, there's a, an upside argument to be made to local businesses, whether they be small, medium-sized, or even corporates in these states, that they have a responsibility. And it's a system-wide problem as problem solvers and committed to what most companies would have as some commitment to the UN's global goals. But when you apply those global goals down to a, a local level, you know, you can't divorce yourself from what's happening on the ground. So I think there is a, um, a conversation that needs to be had in these areas where you're looking at making these arguments for change, not just to say to the local communities, let's get funding for this. Where do brands or local businesses play a part? You know, I'm, I'm sure David has thoughts on this as, as well, but I mean, just to lift up, you know, a lot of really phenomenal neighborhood based community safety programs have been formed out of public private partnerships. Many of the uh, trauma recovery centers that uh, we support get a mix of philanthropic dollars as well as you know, local business support as well as government dollars. The, the same can be said for many of the reentry programs. You know, I, I think what it takes is it takes leadership and it takes leadership either from the private sector or the public sector, but the leadership to bring those two sectors together and say, we want to collaborate to support these types of community based safety programs that, that, that in almost every neighborhood I've ever come across. These programs already exist. They're, they're operating on a dime and they haven't been invested in by either the private sector or the public sector. You know, people uh, fundraise on a, you know, monthly and annual basis to keep, the, keep their doors open despite the fact that they're, you know, doing uh, more than, than most to stop cycles of harm. And so, you know, I think it's really a question of can we corral the kinds of leadership that it would take to make these investments from both the public sector and the private, private sector and really establish capacity, community capacity, equipping communities with the kinds of solutions that uh, would make a would make a big difference. The examples are there. You know, it's really a question of scale. And Mark, I can offer an example. I think when you and I talked earlier, I made some mention to this. In Chicago, 
Chicago is a, a city of neighborhoods. And one of those neighborhoods, an historic, predominantly black community, uh, is Bronzeville. And Bronzeville is historic, but it also struggles with these days with some serious crime issues. When I was in the governor's office, I met a, a pastor there, Pastor Chris Harris. He leads the Bright Star Church there in the Bronzeville community. And he founded an organization called Bright Star Community Outreach. And the part of that that really attracted my attention was that somehow, I mean, he and I are, are going to get together for an, an episode of Justice Voices to discuss this subject in, in the near future. But he, whether on a trip to Israel or something, connected with an organization uh, that has the, goes by the acronym NATAL, N-A-T-A-L, that dealt with trauma for victims of terrorism in Israel. Well, he brought them to Bronzeville. And they trained people in his his church and in the community in trauma-informed care for people in the community. And they ended up, this, this kind of took off, they, they developed the uh, Greater Bronzeville Community Action Plan. And this has over 50 Bronzeville organizations that work together to make a community level impact on violence and trauma and that some of the partners in this effort are Northwestern University Medicine School of Medicine University of Chicago School of Medicine United Way of Metro Chicago the Jewish United Fund Sinai Community Institute Senators Centers for Disease Control and of course others in the community now this is a whole community action plan that was started by a pastor in the community who was well-connected as part of his community, bringing together all these disparate elements. They even provide trauma services to the police in the community because police officers are subjected to trauma almost on a daily basis as a part of their job, both in terms of experiences that they receive as the recipient of hostility and uh, sometimes violence, but also the things that they observe are traumatic. Well, the people in the community, and they're, they're trying to change the community by addressing the trauma that is being individually and collectively experienced within the community. And everybody has a piece of that, a part of that. And there are synergies that have developed. So the Greater Bronzeville Community Action Plan is, I think, an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a great example. Well, um, I'm conscious of time, and I, I think it's been um, a wonderful conversation, Lenora. I don't know if there's anything else you want to raise that you haven't mentioned, or David, if there's anything you want to raise. I have had such a great time talking with you, Mark, and I just enjoyed our conversation yesterday as well, David. I, you know, I just so appreciate um, the thoughtfulness and the and the attention um, that y'all are paying to this. 
you know, I, th- I think we're living in a really exciting time. I, th- I think things are changing fast. Uh, you know, um, the stakes are obviously very high, but the, the work on the ground is happening and, and, you know, new stakeholders are, are really making a claim for a different approach to safety. And it's, it's very exciting to be a part of it and really exciting to talk to both of you about it. I think one thing you need to consider is maybe getting a, a re, a reimagined Mohican. <laughs> that, that would start getting people's attention. You got, you got your focus on your fashion and you got to finish it off with yeah, that mohawk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, bring that yeah, rebel, no. bring that rebel back. <laughs> well, the question I didn't ask you is what were the bands that you were into when you were, um, this, this young rebel? Oh, well, you know, classics, right? So I loved the Misfits and, um, you know, the Dead Kennedys and uh, course, Social yeah. Distortion and Ca- California you know, Uberalis. Yeah. And DRI, you know, uh, all the, all the classics, you know, you name it. If it was, if it was punk and, and fast, I, I was into it. Yeah. Wonderful. Oh, for those days. Anyway, <laughs> it's been a wonderful, a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it and an important conversation to have. So, um, I really appreciate it. Appreciate it so very much. Thank and, you. Thanks to da- both of David, you. David, and thank you as well. You bet. Let's See what happens it. when you, uh, recommend somebody, Lenore. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Collisions. Collisions. Okay, that's right. All right. All right. Bye. See you later. Okay, bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay. That's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much. and see you next time. <laughs>